You're dialed in to 103.7 WPVM LP Asheville, and this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Willie Mason. I want to be better than oxygen so you can breathe when you're drowning and weak in the knees i want to speak louder than riddling for all the children who think that they've got a disease i want to be cooler than tv for all the kids that are wondering what they're going to be we can be Stronger than bombs if you're singing along And you know that you really believe We can be richer than industry As long as we know that there's things that we don't really need We can speak louder than ignorance Cause we speak in silence every time our eyes meet On and on and on it goes it just keeps spinning Until I'm dizzy Time to breathe So close my eyes And start again I want to see through All the lies of society To the reality Happiness is at stake I want to hold up My head with dignity Proud of a life where to give means more than to take I want to live beyond the modern mentality Where paper is all that you're really taught to create Do you remember the forgotten America? Justice, equality, freedom to every race Just need to get past all the lies and hypocrisy Makeup and hair to the truth Behind every face Then look around to all the people you see How many of them are happy and free I know it sounds like a dream But it's the only thing that can get me to sleep at night I know it's hard to believe But it's easy to see That something here isn't right I know the future looks dark, but it's there that the kids of today must carry the light. On and on and on it goes. The world, it just keeps spinning. Until I'm dizzy, time to breathe. So close my eyes and start again anew. If I'm afraid to catch a dream I weave your baskets and I float them down the river stream Each one I weave with words I speak To carry love to your relief Better than oxygen So you can breathe when you're drowning And weak in the knees I want to speak 
louder than riddling for all the children who think that they've got a disease. I wanna be cooler than TV for all the kids that are wondering what they're going to be. We can be stronger than bombs if you're singing along and you know that you really believe. We can be. Richer than industry, as long as we know that there's things that we don't really need. We can speak louder than ignorance, 'cause we speak in silence every time our eyes meet. On and on and on it goes. The world it just keeps spinning until I'm dizzy. Time to breathe. So close my eyes and start again anew. The industry tells me to imagine it, picture it, close my eyes and wait. Can you taste it? The possibility of it all. I tell them no, no, I can't taste it. In fact, what they're telling me is waiting on the widespread horizon for the food industry terrifies me. Let's step back for a second. There are a couple of different ways we're trying to increase food supply and save time on a large scale. One solution, of course, is GMOs. That's a topic for another day. And the second solution is that we're trying to increase supply and save time with ingredients that seem impossible to pull out of thin air, but we can because today we have a machine called the 3D printer. You're probably familiar with the concept by now. Within the last 10 years, 3D printing has been pushing innovation in certain industries to their limits, especially when it comes to manufacturing supplies, medical devices, and toy pieces. 3D printing is appealing because it's super affordable in the long run, and like getting solar panels for your home, it's an investment up front that can pay off in dividends from saved costs later. Now, companies and restaurants are venturing into 3D printing for food. When I think of 3D printing for food, I immediately imagine ingredients akin to something like freeze-dried ice cream. You know, the kind of crumbly, silver-wrapped foods they feed astronauts on space stations. But as I started down the rabbit hole of research into the 3D printed food world, I discovered a few pioneers—people who are obsessed with printing and what it can do. Remember Willy Wonka's factory and the piece of gum that contains a delicious three-course meal you can taste in a few chews? 3D printer companies are going after that kind of compact experience, making something big from something small, practically non-existent, a few base materials. And the makers of 3D food printing solutions are specifically seeking to answer the same question we all have. If we're pursuing the idea of technology replacing a limited food supply, whether it's because of seasonality or geographic availability or rising costs, how can we replicate the freshness and depth of experience? Is that even possible? One company believes it is. At the forefront of the 3D food movement is one pioneer who has dominated the press: Natural Machines, creators of the quote Foodini. Lynette Kuzma co-founded the company in Barcelona in 2012, and they launched as the first 3D food printer to make both sweet and savory foods using, get this, fresh ingredients. They first focused on sweets, which were easy to print, but eventually proved too expensive to offer the public at a price that would be profitable for them. And then they wanted to turn their attention to more wholesome foods. 
In 2014, Natural Machines launched Foodini to the world, a 4.7-inch high Android-powered 3D food printer, something that could easily sit on your kitchen counter. Foodini users just need a Wi-Fi connection to choose recipes from Natural Machines' community website, which they can also do remotely from a smartphone or tablet. They can also choose from a library of food shapes or design their own to print. Up to five food capsules can be loaded into the printer at one time, which doesn't sound very appetizing, but wait. They have to fill it with their own rough ingredients. It also has different nozzle sizes to accommodate different textures, which means additives such as maltodextrin is no longer needed in the food to hold its shape. Foodini isn't suited to print every type of food. You're not going to get a seven-course meal with the press of a button, nor was it ever intended to do that. Rather, there are certain foodstuffs that a 3D printer excels at. Think about crackers and certain pasta shapes. Foodini's tiniest nozzle can print as thin as a half millimeter, which would be almost impossible to achieve by hand. And therefore, they answer my biggest question. Why would anyone want to print 3D food if it doesn't solve a supply problem or a problem of time? The Foodini isn't too different from a regular 3D printer, but instead of printing with plastics, it deploys edible ingredients squeezed out of stainless steel capsules. In essence, this is a mini food manufacturing plant shrunk down to the size of an oven. The Foodini isn't trying to solve world hunger. They're just trying to make the world of the professional or home chef a little easier and more convenient. But at first glance, I think it's something that was invented for lazy people. Press a button and voila, your ingredients are there. Instant ravioli, crackers, pasta. In their words, Natural Machines says that the Foodini is valuable because, quote, today, too many people eat too many convenience foods, processed foods, packaged foods, or pre-made meals. Many of these with ingredients that are unidentifiable to the common consumer versus homemade, healthy foods and snacks. But there is the problem of people not having enough time to make homemade foods from scratch. Foodini is a kitchen appliance that takes on the difficult parts of making food that is hard or time-consuming to make fully by hand. By 3D printing the food, you can automate some of the assembly or finishing steps of home cooking, thus making it easier to create freshly made meals and snacks. Take an example of ravioli. How often have you made homemade ravioli? I know that I've never made it. <laughs> now, Foodini will print individual raviolis for you. The 3D printing of food, in this case, creating a layer of pasta, a layer of filling, and covering it with a layer of pasta again, is assembling the ravioli. The same as you would do by hand, except the Foodini automates it. You don't have to manually do all the work. In fact, you can turn away while it does it. After Foodini is done, put the ravioli in boiling water to cook it, or you can even bake them in the oven, if that's your thing. Currently, the device only prints the food, which must then be cooked as usual, and the Foodini sells to professional kitchens for around $4,000. Not exactly something that a professional chef at home can afford. But they're designing a future model that will prepare the food and cook it and produce it ready to eat. This is where the entire food industry could pivot, but we're not there yet. In the meantime, Foodini is focused on the next phase, trying to solve the problem of having people supply their own ingredients for the printer. 
They're working with major food manufacturers to create pre-packaged capsules that can just be loaded into the machine to make food, even though they assure us these will be free of preservatives with a shelf life limited to five days. It could be the next blue apron or sun basket, a meal kit for your printer. It's hard for me to like it, but we have to remember that just a few decades ago, our culture had the same issue and apprehension around the microwave. When it was introduced, we assumed our food could be poisoned with radiation, but fast forward 30 years and now there's one in every household. This is real food with real fresh ingredients, and it's just prepared using a new technology. You could make the argument against 3D printer ingredients as you could about processed food. It may not be the freshest or support the farm-to-table concept, but it does save time, and time is very scarce. Right now, 3D printed food seems more frivolity, a way to mix art with technology, rather than a way to solve food supply issues. Food Inc., I-N-K, for example, premiered the world's first 3D printed pop-up restaurant. The Food Inc. gastronomic pop-up experience takes place in an immersive, futuristic space filled with wall-to-wall visuals and AI-composed music. Everything is completely produced by 3D printing, including furniture, utensils, and yes, the food. The food does look incredible. Think intricate flower designs, gorgeous pastry cups, professionally sculpted pâtés. Their tagline is, quote, taste tomorrow today. But they haven't posted or appeared anywhere since last spring, over a year ago, just after they began their world tour. It seems they have disappeared into thin air, and their future is shaky. Elaborate pop-up events aside, there are smaller, direct-to-consumer technologies available now. The Hamacher Schlemmer catalog features a 3D pancake printer. Using a combination of compressed air pressure and vacuum suction, it reproduces drawings and designs on a griddle by strategically dispensing your batter. You can just select the design at the touch of a button. Imagine making pancakes shaped like a spaceship or that look exactly like the Mona Lisa. It's that whimsical and fun, but again, it's as helpful as an ice cream maker when it comes to deepening the food experience. And it's definitely not solving any major issues. Will 3D food printing be possible to scale on a mass production level that can feed a community in need? Probably not anytime soon. But there are whispers among the community, and I'm sure that somewhere at this very moment, in a lab, someone is pushing a button and patiently waiting, testing, printing, and making notes for yet another test sample of food that will usher us into an era for which most of us may not be ready.
WPVM. Jesse Shires. Where are you from? I'm originally from Craig County, Virginia. Virginia girl. Is that is that Appalachia? It is Appalachia. Right Thank you for not saying Appalachia. I'm from here. I know better. It's Blue Ridge, but it's Ridge and Valley Appalachia. Cool. What does that mean? There are three different distinct um, regions of Appalachia, and it has to do with the topography. Craig County is in Ridge and Valley, which is exactly what it sounds like. These long, straight lines of ridges with valleys in between. Asheville has got a totally different topography. So it's just, every time I drive home, you can you kind of cross that line where you start to see, see those different. long ridges. So I grew up in a high valley in between two long ridges. Yeah. Um, so where do you work, Jesse? What's going on? Um, right now I work at Sovereign Remedies, which is a bar and restaurant in downtown Asheville. One of my favorites. It is one of mine too. I have worked all over the industry, coffee shops and sports bars and four star Forbes rated white tablecloth wearing a suit with shoulder pads as my uniform, fine dining. And I love Sovereign. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a great place to land. It's, they just do great cocktails and great food. Um, what are you going to tell us about? Well, um, my partner is also a lifelong industry veteran and service is something we talk about a lot in our house. I don't know if that makes us nerds or not, but it's, it's, it's not nerdy. It's just veterans, (laughs) but we've got some, some, you know, really deeply held opinions on the subject. And this is sort of a my take on service and it's it's funny how those of us who have worked in the industry for as long as we have both love it and hate it but it's the love of it that keeps us coming back right cool well here's jesse shires reading her piece my pleasure my pleasure your pleasure (laughs) all right welcome to the dirty spin we are all right All right. My feet hurt. It's been a long night. The 10 top that would have made up a large chunk of my income for the night no showed. I haven't had a bathroom break in six hours, never mind a bite to eat. Chef has been yelling at me for the modifications that my guest requested. 
Table 14 left a pitifully small tip. The note on their receipt says my service was outstanding, but they didn't like being seated next to the discreetly breastfeeding new mother. Table 29 is outraged that the plate she saw listed on a six-month-old menu online isn't available this evening. We have ruined her birthday dinner. The gentleman seated at this very same table earlier called me sweetheart and sugar and touched the small of my back. Don't do that. Did I mention my feet hurt? My last table declines a refill on their coffees and asks for the check. They say... Thank you so much. We've had a, such a wonderful time. Their smiles are warm. Their enthusiasm is genuine. I smile back and I say, it's been my pleasure. And though I'm still surprised every single time to realize it, the astonishing truth is, it truly has been my pleasure. The best servers I've known have a deeply conflicted relationship to their work. Despite the fact that it can be intellectually stimulating, physically demanding, and financially rewarding, restaurant work is not, as a rule, respected as a legitimate career choice. Most people who've never done it hold to the notion that it's uncomplicated drivel. We jot down what people want to eat, bring a few things to the table, and that's about it. You know, trained monkey stuff. The reality is humbling. And it's the reason that so many industry veterans openly fantasize about mandatory employment and service for all adults. A draft to cultivate empathy, if you will. In a busy shift, you are managing a running list of at least a dozen tasks, constantly shifting priorities, and the comically unpredictable expectations of a random collection of total strangers who are all in various states of hungry, hangry, and intoxicated. On other days, you'll find yourself indentured into gross, bizarre, and tedious tasks. These are what job descriptions often term other duties as assigned. You aren't paid as a plumber or a handyman, but you'll be expected to play one in a slow shift. The pitfalls are many. Some are bigger than others. For one, the power dynamic between customer and employee in our culture provides abundant opportunities for creeps, cheapskates, and bullies to get their kicks. I have watched a grown-ass adult bring a 17-year-old host to tears over a simple wait to be seated on a busy night, gloating and grinning with every minute of it. I've witnessed people shamelessly eat an entire meal with relish, practically licking the plates clean before demanding every last penny of it be comped because... Well, they just didn't like it. I've seen patrons wield Yelp, the restaurant owner's name, and even baby Jesus himself as cudgels to get their way. And every time, all but the most heroic of managers will roll over, show a soft belly, and give the customer what they ask for. Because you know who's always right? It certainly couldn't be the professionals who do this job day after day after day. No. And of course, there's the tipping issue. This one's been done to death, but experience tells me it somehow still bears repeating. Tipping is an agreement, not an extra. When you take a table at a sit-down establishment in a location where a living wage is not mandated for restaurant workers, you are accepting a temporary loan. The price of whatever you order is subsidized by the low, low wages the restaurant is allowed to pay its front of house staff. It's a hair above two bucks an hour for most servers. 
The bargain you make when you are seated is that you will enjoy the discounted menu prices and help pay the staff directly, rather than pay what your meal actually costs while the owner pays a full wage. It's kooky, yes. There are many reasons to ditch this system, and in fact, a growing number of restaurateurs are experimenting with various ways to do just that. But for now, this is how it works. I understand that it's uncomfortable to be expected to hand your money directly to another person rather than leaving the business to handle payroll. Believe me, it is equally uncomfortable to have to rely upon the goodwill, common sense, and math skills of your average citizen to earn a living. Dissatisfied with your service? Fine. There's a remedy for that. Speak to the manager and give the establishment the opportunity to make things right. Any place worth its salt wants you to be happy, and if they don't, you should never go back there. A lower tip might very well be warranted depending on the circumstances, but remember, the server isn't the only person relying on your gratuity. Servers share a portion of every tip with the bartenders, bussers, backwaiters, and other support staff. So, while it may violate your sense of fairness to give a good tip to a less than stellar server, it is almost always the right and moral thing to do. Stiffing is the nuclear option, and that blast radius has more people in it than just the bumbling sap who got your order wrong. Still not sure? Well, we're entertaining and informative, so here's a handy guide. Reasons to tip 20% or more. Almost every circumstance, period, end of story. Reasons to tip less than 20%. Genuinely poor service. You will note that this does not include circumstances outside the server's control, such as an unsatisfactory reservation or wait time, you shouldn't tip poorly if your steak wasn't seasoned to your liking or you think there just wasn't enough booze in your cocktail. You shouldn't punish the server if the outdoor patio seating was, surprise, adversely affected by the weather. And you most certainly shouldn't withhold a proper tip simply because your preferred sporting event was not featured on the TV closest to your table. I really wish I were making these up. Look, you have my blessing to tip less than 20% for genuinely poor service if you feel you must. And please, for the love of waffle fries, tell a manager about your experience before you leave so they can address it. We all want to know when we can be better. And finally, reasons to leave no tip. Practically none whatsoever. Unless maybe the server intentionally set you on fire. Uh, released a herd of diarrheic wolverines into the dining room during your meal, or they just finally snapped and took hostages before you got your dessert. Never, never, never stiff your server. But back to the work. After all this, somehow we still love it. Fitzgerald, that's F. Scott, pointed out, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Sidestepping the question of intelligence rating, I will say that the best of us spend every day holding two diametrically opposed ideas in our hearts, each 100% true. Number one, we f***ing hate this job. Number two, we can't think of anything else we'd rather be doing. I used to be a paramedic, 
I've seen a breathtaking variety of death, dismemberment, profound psychosis, and garden variety stupidity. From a frontline perspective, the parallels between food service and EMS are striking. In both cases, our responsibilities are complex and poorly understood by those outside the industry. You're always managing multiple tasks at once under conditions that are constantly changing. You have to have the ability to inspire the instant trust of strangers and correctly decipher their often inscrutable needs. Sure, apart from neglecting to document food allergies, a server's mistake isn't likely to kill anyone. But, having done both jobs, I can tell you that the skills and talents it takes to excel in one position are identical to what you need to succeed in the other. The real difference? As a paramedic, it impressed people when I told them what I did for a living. As a server, I'm mostly asked when I'm gonna get a real job. But here's the thing. A true professional in any field strives for excellence, even when they have no reason to expect recognition or appreciation. You find this striving in the best doctors, scientists, and CEOs. You also find it in top-notch receptionists and garbage collectors and retail clerks. It's what sets the finest humans apart, and it is its own reward. This striving and the satisfaction it brings is what spurs so many of us on. Whether or not our work is respected, we are professionals. At least part of my day off will be spent studying menus and preparation techniques, or expanding my craft beverage knowledge, and keeping up to date on industry trends. I put in the work during my off time to make sure that you have a stellar visit when I'm on the clock. So when I say it has been my pleasure to serve you, the words might seem like a meaningless platitude, but I'm using them to say thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to flex this muscle I have worked so hard to develop. I study the menu so that I can answer your questions in detail and with confidence. I read about wine and spirits and go to tastings and enter cocktail competitions so I can point you towards a libation you will enjoy. I make sure I have the tools I need to do my job well so that you can feel effortlessly, elegantly welcomed when you sit at my table. And as with any job well done, the pleasure comes with the execution. And so, even though my feet hurt, and I'm exhausted and down to my last frayed nerve, even though every single table has worn my spirit thin tonight with outrageous demands and banal conversation, I am being more honest than you can imagine when I thank you and invite you to dine with us again soon. The pleasure, to my continuous amazement, has indeed been all mine. Oh, what a 
good day to go fishing And catch the sunset in the hills And dream of my yesterdays and tomorrows And hope that you'll be with me still Saw a butterfly and named it after you Your name has such a pleasant sound Love is all around And all I see is you I must be in a good place now Sunset in the hills And dream of my yesterdays and tomorrows And hope that you'll be with me still I saw a butterfly and I named it After you Your name has such a pleasant sound Love is all around And all I see is you I must be in a good place Must be in a good place now. We like to say that the Dirty Spoon brings you stories from the people who shape what we consume. But while most of our stories revolve around chefs, servers, and home cooks, that can often miss the people who quite literally shape our food, growing it day in and day out, our farmers. The Appalachian Sustainable Agriculture Project, or ASAP, has been working to support local farmers since the year 2000. And in addition to developing the local food guides, connecting farmers to farmers markets, and running the Asheville City Market, the nonprofit also produces the Growing Local podcast, hosted by Jen Nathan-Orris. She highlights stories of local farmers. Dirty Spoon is so happy to bring those stories into our show. Here's Jen. The Moreno family's farming roots stretch back to Mexico, where Salvador Moreno Sr. herded goats as a young boy. It was a long journey to Hayesville, North Carolina, 
where he and his family now grow and sell produce under the name SMM Farms. His son, Salvador Jr., shares their farm story. My dad was kind of uh, the classic uh, immigrant worker. So he traveled all over the U.S. just working seasonally from place to place. And eventually we found uh, a place called Bryson City right here in Western North Carolina where he finally settled down. Salvador Sr. and his wife became U.S. citizens in 2004 and eventually found a large piece of land in Hayesville that was for lease. He went over there with just a, a pickup truck and uh, didn't even have a, a tractor at that point, but over the years he just kind of kept doing what he does. He's a very pure definition of a workaholic and he got to the point where he got like a 100 acre farm and tractors and stuff and he's just an amazing gentleman. The Moreno family still leases the land and now grows strawberries, tomatoes and corn to sell at their fruit stand on the farm. Salvador Jr. says they've come across some challenges running a Latino-owned business in a rural community. My dad owns the, the business and he runs the farm and uh, he's whenever he's at the fruit stand we have a lot of local folks that come in and work for us at the fruit stand. They're a cashier. For the longest time, when anyone ever had a question, they would completely bypass him and look to the old, old farmer Joe looking guy and they would ask them questions and they would be, of course, really good friends with my dad and be like, no, 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 you need to talk to him, he's the owner. And they would kind of look at him dubiously like, where, him, the, the, the guy, the worker? No, the, the owner, yeah, him. So that's been kind of a challenge, but getting to know my dad, uh, everybody that I know of just loves him. And now people really know him, you know? It's not the, the, the Latino farm, it's, it's Salvador's farm. He says neighbors and customers have come to embrace their family over the years. If you try and start a business in the mountains, there's always going to be that southern hospitality kind of thing. You know, it um, you can't just have clients. You know, you, you have uh, old Mrs. Anderson, and you have uh, Mr. Bill. You know, you, you you develop these relationships with these folks, and they they develop it with you. Uh, when we had our first child, you know, we had so many people come in bringing us like blankets that they hand crocheted and stuff for our child. You know, that, that's something beyond a buyer-seller uh, kind of relationship. Salvador Jr. and his wife Alyssa spend a lot of time talking to customers at the fruit stand, telling them about what's in season and how the produce is grown. They say they're motivated to continue the family farm because they want a wholesome life for their young children and they want to share their love of local seasonal food with the community. You know, when you talk about legacy, there's kind of a, a dual, dual purpose there for us. One is keep the tradition and the values and the hard work of my, my father going and bringing our, our family up into it. And also maybe uh, getting some folks some really good food and the way food was meant to be. Find out how to visit their farm stand and many others in ASAP's local food guide, AppalachianGrown.org. Stitches laying by the side of the
fall, I was once again invited to the Terra Vida Festival in Chapel Hill. The three-day symposium of culinary nerdism has become one of my favorite food events in an industry chock-full of exceedingly mediocre festivals. I won't get into my hatred of the food festival here, but consider it fierce and long-suffering. But there's something about Colleen Minton's Terra Vida. Based around the idea of cultivating a slow foods farm-to-table movement, In a more mindful way of eating, the grand tasting brings together some of the Triangle's more interesting kitchens. The dinners feature authors that take their books beyond recipes and into the heritage of many foods. And their classes range from social justice in the restaurant industry to tracing the roots of where our foods come from. Hint, if you're in the South, a lot of it comes from Africa. But the thing that caught me by the sleeve and wouldn't let me go this year was the course on Appalachian culture. Vittles author Ronnie Lundy, Blind Pig founder Mike Moore, Ian Bowden of Virginia's The Shack, and the seasonal school of culinary arts director Susie Gott-Siguray were all there. Well, Ronnie got waylaid when her praised Astro Van broke down. They were talking about what it means to be Appalachian. In the time that I've been writing about food, and in particular, food in Appalachia, I have never been able to truly pinpoint what is distinct about Appalachian cuisine, or culture for that matter, other than the fact that it is sour, aged, and long-held, much like our prejudices. So upon leaving Chapel Hill, and returning to the hills where I was raised, I started poring over the idea with a little more intent. What were the things that I learned from my elders, my grandmother, the women at her church, my aunts and uncles, my father and mother, the people I've met along the way, 
What did they teach me? For most of that wisdom, I can whittle it down to a phrase, one that could perhaps even serve as a mantra. Make stock, bake bread, and preserve what you love. Let's start with that last bit, the pickles and preserves. Both my grandmother and my great-grandmother were canners. In fact, their primary recipe books were canning books. I've always liked that, because they understood that canning was a form of cooking, and that the flavors you include in the jar would be the things your guests might taste come Thanksgiving dinner. There's something quite personal about the flavors you hand-select to include in your canned green beans versus the can you might have picked up for 89 cents at the grocery store on your way home. Do you can with garlic, black pepper, red pepper for spice? Do you use herbs or ginger? Everyone seems to do it differently. But the most important part of canning seems to be what one chooses to preserve. After all, we tend to save what we love. One of my favorite results of this Appalachian tradition of canning and pickling is that it means that foods that would otherwise be purely seasonal become year-round features on the dinner table. The tomatoes you harvested from the garden in June are savored in March in a scratch-made tomato sauce, eggs in purgatory bubbling away. The wild strawberries from that hike in July come back to life on warm biscuits after you've been sledding. But it also goes a little deeper. That preservation means a lot more than just the summer harvest. Preserving what you love means saving those parts of the culture that are ingrained in you, concentrating them, and keeping them for the future. These often clothe themselves in simple gestures, manners, and habits. Like when your neighbor comes looking for a part for his broken shelf in his shed, and you happen to have one. You give it to him, and you understand that you can settle it later, or that it'll all just shake out in the wash. Or when your church or town hall meeting ends, you all stay and help fold up the chairs and sweep up the floor, because if you don't, someone else will have to. Or when your friend is having a fight with his wife, you let him crash on your couch so that they can have some space with people they know and trust. These things are innate in our culture at our best times, when we are ripe. And just like the peak harvest of your garden, the best you can offer should be preserved, even if that means pickling. Baked bread. Every culture has bread. It is one of the building blocks of civilization. In fact, the desire to manage and grow wheat in order to make bread was really what brought the first tribes of people together in Sumer and Egypt to develop the first systems of government in human history. Exchanging for bread was the inspiration for money as a token of value, hence the slang term bread for cash. And even Jesus coined the term for soaking up time with your friends and family as breaking bread. I was in Vermont a while back, bumming around the Appalachian Mountains in the Northern Kingdom, right off the border with Canada. My friend Jen had coaxed me into the hills to visit the Bread and Puppet Museum in the tiny town of Glover. For those not familiar with the Bread and Puppet, they were a group of artists that banded together around Peter Schumann in 1962 to protest the Vietnam War through the love of art and puppetry. But these aren't just any puppets. 
Towering, multi-story papier-mâché creatures loom from the ceilings. Warped creatures depicting the horrors of war, the pompous corruption and callous views of world leaders, and the ravaged remnants of the people caught in the wake of global conflict. The museum is most definitely worth the drive should you find yourself in Vermont. But what is more important for our needs in this story is not the puppets, but the name. Bread and Puppet came from Schumann's philosophy that art should be like good bread. Nourishing, carefully made, delicious, and cheap. So that anyone can be fed. Because that's the thing about bread. It's the great leveler of food. Both the finest white tablecloth restaurants, as well as the diviest soul spots, and even fast food joints, they all serve bread. It is the universal language for nourishment, a common tongue among all cultures. But what makes bread so great to me is the care and attention to detail it takes to make it. Unlike stock, it requires precise measurements, careful handling, and most importantly, time. It is a time-honored tradition, and something that, when shared, is the ultimate culinary declaration of affection and camaraderie. The only thing we have in this life, of true value, is our time. And lastly, make stock. My father seems to have always understood and made great effort to convey to his children that value is not inherent in something, rather it is created that every situation has its fair share of downs and disappointments, but that even the worst of what we go through can be pressed into something of value. I keep a Ziploc bag in my freezer that I cram full of every trimming from every carrot, radish, celery, and turnip, each onion, cauliflower, broccoli, and garlic in, as well as every corn husk, onion skin, chicken bone, or shrimp shell. When the bag is full, I dump it all in a big stock pot, and slowly simmer the random assortment of scraps overnight. By the next morning, there is an otherworldly reduction of compacted and concentrated flavor. Once strained and seasoned with salt and pepper, I freeze that stock in pint-sized pours in Ziploc bags that I lay flat in the freezer so that I can line them up like books in a library on my freezer shelves. I can make soups with these, spice up a packet of ramen on a drunk night, or even just drink them when I'm not feeling well. I use them in my chicken and dumplings, in my coca van, and even to make my grits. The cornerstone of cooking is stock, and the cornerstone of stock is your trash. There is no more literal example of turning trash into treasure more prescient than stock. And there is nothing more pertinent to Appalachian culture than creating something of value from what others tend to waste.
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2018. All of the text from our stories, as well as the podcasts of each episode, are available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The incredible art on that page is by Katrin Doza and Corinne Pease. And the growing local podcast can be found at asapconnections.org. Music in this episode by Willie Mason, The Meters, The Album Leaf, Colleen, Marlon Williams, Cujo, Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra, Penguin Cafe, Olafar Arnolds, B. Fleischman, The Decemberists, Bobby Charles, Daniel Lenoir, Molly Birch, and Father John Misty. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, handles our website, marketing, and sources our stories. John Ammons is our editor-in-chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for stories, music, and conversations from the people who shape what we consume.